KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. Today we're going to start looking at the thought of Rav Tzadok HaKoyen from Lublin. Rav Tzadok was born in 1823 and passed away in 1900. He began his life as a Lithuanian misnagid and received a traditional Lithuanian education. At one point in his life, due to personal reasons, he actually was uh, going around Europe meeting Rabbanim for Heter Mei Rabbanim. He met the Yimei HaShiloch, the Ishpitzer, and this encounter had a profound effect upon him, and Rav Tzadok decided to become a Chassid, and he ultimately became a Chassidish Rebbe. I think if one looks at his thought and compares it to other of the major figures in the Hasidic movement, I think one sees a greater integration of Halacha and Machshava, of Gemara and Chassidut, and perhaps this stems from Rav Tzadok's upbringing as a, uh, a misnagid. He was also quite a Talmud Chacham in the world of Gemara. We have Chubot from him. <coughs> and we're going to start looking at Rav Tzadok's thought. Uh, I want to emphasize one particular aspect of Rav Tzadok's thought, something, and I'm going to borrow a term here from Professor Yaakov Elman. Professor Yaakov Elman called, coined a term called omnisignificance. And for omnisignificance, he means the assumption that one extracts the maximum of religious meaning from, from a source, in that various details and questions of placement and wording and the like are not explained in technical terms or historical terms or, the products of cha- or as the product of chance, but rather they must convey some kind of deep religious meaning. And we'll see a few examples of this. We'll start with the question of the placement of Agadot. One traditional approach to the placement of Agadot and Shas would see them as often entering through technical associations. Just to give you a classic example, uh, why does the Agadotah uh, of Shimon Bar Yochai and the cave appear in the second parak of Shabbat? Well, in the previous Gemara, it referred to Rabbi Yehuda as the Rosh HaMadabrim B'chol Makom. Then the Gemara would like to know why was Rabbi Yehuda called the Rosh HaMadabrim B'chol Makom? And this motivates the citation of the Shimon Bar Yochai story, which indeed explains that Rabbi Yehuda, who praised the Romans, got a special uh, privilege to speak first in any occasion. So this is a traditional approach, and perhaps that could be true about other things as well. Rav Tzadok denies this. Rav Tzadok is very adamant that this is not the case. Agadot must be placed in their Masechet for a reason. Here, Rav Tzadok is very adamant in the pre-Tzadik, Kedushat HaShabbat Gimel, which appears in Breshit. Pre-Tzadik is Rav Tzadok's commentary in the Torah. It says, Our sages place things in the Gemara in the appropriate place, below al-tzad his domain, and not through some kind of happenstance, or they had a good opportunity, as if the Chazal had a good story and they just couldn't figure out where to put it, and they waited for some more technical kind of association to enable it to, them to place it somewhere in Shas. So Rav Tzadok denies this. The placement must have meaning. Let's look at a few examples of Rav Tzadok's theory. The Agadot of Churban Habayit are, of course, in Gitin. And uh, we know these are some of the most famous stories in Gemara. We have the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, and the story of Rav Yochanan and Zakai going out of the camp to meet Vespasian. Still only classic Gemarot. The technical perspective would again say there was an association here that brought these Gemarot into Masechet Gitin. That the Mishnah in Gitin had talked about a term called Sikrikun, based on a Latin term, and indeed the Gemara about the Chorban has to, refers to a group, uh, first to a fellow named Abba Sikra. We know from Josephus that one group of, uh, of passionately uh, nationalistic zealots was called the Sikari. So maybe it's a word association, Sikriku and Abba Sikra, Sikari. 
This is why this is why the Gemara appears in that Parakamasakh Gitin. Now again, Rav Tzadok, based on his uh, methodology, cannot accept that. So Rav Tzadok says, this is again the source in Preet Sadiq Kedusha Shabbat Gemol. Lefisha Churban Kigerishin. So we, the Churban represents a break, right? We have a classic metaphor in Tanakh and Chazal that the relationship between God and the Jewish people is like the relationship between uh, a husband and wife. And Churban Habayid represents a rupture in that relationship. If the temple is destroyed, the relationship is not full. And that's, that's the Churban. Now, it's interesting, I've heard a corollary of this that I've never seen in Rav Tzadok. I'm curious if this is somewhere in Rav Tzadok and I missed it, or just that people take uh, Rav Tzadok's idea and extend it in a very logical fashion, which is that the Agadot about Eretz Yisrael, appear, of course, appear at the very end of Masech Ketubot. And the suggestion has been, well, Ketubot would represent a coming together, right, the marriage document, and therefore the land of Israel is where the Jews would be able to have this coming together with Ribbon Shalom. As mentioned, although I think Rav Tzadok, it certainly fits into Rav Tzadok's uh, shita, I have not seen that in Rav Tzadok, although Rav Tzadok in a few places does say that the Gitin, the Churban about, uh, the Gagadot about the Churban belong in Gitin for the reasons we've said. But then Rav Tzadok takes it one step further. Rav Tzadok says, which Perek of Gitin is this in? And Rav Tzadok points out that it's in a Perek called Hanizakin. Now there are Prakim in Gitin, such as Hamagaresh, which have the word divorce in them. So Rav Tzadok says this too has significance, that perhaps a parak is chosen to indicate it's not quite a divorce. Because the truth is, although the Churban might represent some kind of break or rupture in the relationship between God and the Jewish people, we do not believe that this is some kind of permanent break, or some kind of break that means that a relationship between the individual or the people and God and the Gola is impossible. This is not our belief. Indeed, he quotes the Navi, Where is the bill of divorce? That this is not, despite the exile, despite the korban, this is not a get. Says Rav Sadr, that's why it belongs in Nizikin. Because a get creates a break between husband and wife. Nizikin is damages, but damages can be compensated for. And then he refers to another Gemara in Babakama, which uh, has uh, Hashem Ki'ilu as the one who caused damage through fire. Mavir Eish Bitzion. And he's the one who's atid l'shalem, that Hashem will pay back the damages. So here we have Tzadok applying his principle that the Churban is placed for a reason in Masechet Gitin, but he takes it one step further. Not only is the placement significant in terms of the chosen Masechet, but even the chosen Perak also is part of is part of the message here. Rav Tzadik does this in a few other places. Uh, let's do a couple of other examples. In his pre again, his parish on Chumash, there's a section on Erev Yom Kippur, and Rav Tzadik there discusses the uh, mitzvah to eat on Erev Yom Kippur, and he has a fascinating discussion there about uh, fixing the sin of Adam HaRishon. Adam HaRishon sins in the realm of eating. Right? Adam and Chava eat from the Yetzadad. And for Rav Tzadok, both the Yachil of Erev Yom Kippur and Yom Kippur proper are, in a sense, a tikkun to the schet. Yom Kippur, of course, represents fasting. Right? Fasting is one way to be metakein, a sin, a transgression regarding eating. Of course, the other way to be metakein, the transgression regarding eating, is not to abstain, but to eat in a more kadosh fashion. And that is represented by the eating, the mitzvah to eat on Erev Yom Kippur. Rav Tzadok then goes on to say that there's a reason why the Agadot about the man are placed in the eighth parak of Masechet Yoma, the Masechet about Yom Kippur. And the man, for Rav Tzadok, represents some kind of mazon ruchani, a more spiritual kind of food, which already talks about dealing with this issue of food. 
which connects it to Yom, which is Yom Kippur, which again is about Mesachet uh, about dealing with this Chayda Damarishon, as it were, dealing with the Chayda food. And uh, indeed, even the Gemara Yuma there refers to Man as some Ashari would eat. Again, giving a sense that Man is somehow a less corporeal kind of uh, sustenance. So if you have this uh, somehow more ethereal, less corporeal eating of the man, which of course connects to Yom Kippur. In the same passage, Rav Tzadok also suggests that the Agadot of Matan Torah appear in Mesechet Shabbat, right, Pei Vav through Pei Chet. Again, it's because, he says, that Torah was given on Shabbat. Therefore, the Agadot appear in, Shabbat, in Mesechet Shabbat. Presumably, Rav Tzadok means that, again, there's a deeper message why Matan Torah has to be on a Shabbos. And therefore, the Agadot of Matan Torah also belong in Mesechet Shabbat. In the very beginning of Tzidkat HaTzadik, the second piece, Rav Tzadok also uh, has explanation for why Shas begins with Brachot. Okay, we talked about Pre Tzadik, his parish and Chumash. Tzidkat HaTzadik, in some ways, is the easiest entry into Rav because it begins with some shorter pieces. Pre Tzadik's pieces are much longer. And the first, uh, some 30-odd sections are explaining the first couple of Dapen Mesechet Brachot. So Rav Tzadok says, why does Shas start with Brachot? So he quotes the Pazla, First you have to know God, and then you can serve Him. And he points out, this is really the idea of every Bracha. Brachot precede mitzvot, where we have a concept of Birkata mitzvah, and it's really to place the mitzvah in a certain context. When we're doing this mitzvah, it's, we view it as divine command. We view it as part of our ongoing search for a relationship with Rebona Shalom. If we did the mitzvah without the Bracha, the Bracha would not give it that kind of context. It turns out that when we want to learn Shas, we have the same thing. We'd like to put Shas in a particular context. Where is this coming from, this learning? This learning is based on our cleaving to re- relationship with Yibon Shalom, our understanding of the Hashem as a mitzvah. So brachot makes sense is what should be the first mesechet in Shas. Rav Tzadok also has an explanation for why Nida is at the end of Shas. This is not found in that piece in Tzidkar Tzadik, but Rav Tzadok has another work called Likutei Mamarim, if one looks at Likuti Mamarim, which in the old edition, page 228, he also explains why Nida is at the end. And Rav Tzadok points out that the Gemara Masech Nida and Lamed Aleph and Medbet is curious, it's about rationales for certain mitzvot, and the Gemara suggests a rationale for, Masech, for, for the concept of Nida. And famously, the Gemara says, we're afraid, Ragilbav Akatzba, we're afraid that a husband and wife will start to become uh, bored with each other. But if one creates a break, this creates a renewed sense of excitement in the coming back together. A very famous Gemara giving a rationale for the halacha of Nida. Now, Rav Tzadok would like to take that and make Nida a symbol of kind of lack of uh, boredom, a sense of freshness in life. And this is very appropriate at the end of Shas. At the end of Shas, one could have a sense that one's already done it. Shas is uh, kind of over and done with. There's no new creativity and excitement to the endeavor. And after one finishes Nida, one returns to Brachot with a sense of renewed excitement. So for Rav Tzadok, Nida is a symbol at the end that we don't, one doesn't get bored with Shas, even if one has completed, but there's always a, a new vigor, a new excitement, a new passion that one can generate towards this endeavor. Now here again, I think Rav Tzadok shows how far he extends this position, because even if one claims that there should be a reason for most placement issues in Shas, I think one, one could easily argue this would not apply to Nida being the last Mesechah in Shas. For a very simple reason, because Nida is not really the last Masechet in Shas, in the sense that when Rebbe divided up the Mishnah, but so Masechet Nida is not the last Masechet of Mishnayot in Tarot. The end of Shas would be actually in Uksin. However, since when they composed the Bavli, they did not write about halachot that weren't relevant today, with the exception of Kachim, 
but in, they did not write Bavli on Zra'im and Tarot. So in Tarot, you end up not having Mesechto. Need, of course, is the one Mesechto in Tarot that has this kind of double component. On the one hand, it has a Tum of Atar aspect that we don't practice today. On the other hand, it has a Mutter Aser component that is practiced today. So there is Bavli on Nida. So one might have argued that it's really a historical accident that Nida is the last Mesechto in Talmud Bavli. Right? It, even though it's not the end of Tarot, since it's the only Mesechto in Tarot that was being practiced halachically at the time of the composition of Talmud Bavli. That's why it, it ends up being the last one. But once again, Rav Tzadok refuses to take that as the explanation. There has to be a deeper meaning to why Nida ends up at the end. So just to sum up what we have here, we have Rav Tzadok arguing that the placement of Agadot has to always convey religious meaning. We've seen him do it both about which Mesechet it's placed in and as well as which Perak it's placed in, in the example of Gitin. We see him even doing it about what should st- which, which Mesechet should, st- should start Shas and which Mesechet should end Shas. And again, strikingly, even Mesechet Nida, which might have been explained as a technical accident, is explained as being pregnant religious, religious meaning, why it's at the end of Shas. Just to apply Rav Sadak to another case we haven't discussed yet, clearly uh, I mentioned in the beginning that the Rav Shimon Bayochai Gemara might appear in the second Perak of Mesechet Shabbat because of a technicality, trying to explain why Rabbi Yehuda is Rosh Dabrim B'chom Makom. However, if one starts to think in Rav Tzadok's terms, it's actually pretty clear that the end of the Rav Shimon Yochai story, of course, is after they emerge from the cave the second time, and there's still a sense that the Rav Shimon Yochai and his son are not happy with the mundane activities of the average member of Klal Yisrael, like the plowing and the planting, and they meet an elderly Jew running before Shabbos with two myrtle branches. And when he explains to them that he has these myrtle branches to honor Shabbos, one for Zachar and one for Shamar, then Rav Shimon Yochai and his son are calmed that they see that the common Jew does really love mitzvot. Now, of course, here we have something happening, having to do with preparing for Shabbos. The second parak of Masechet Shabbat, of course, has to do with preparing for Shabbos. So I think here one could argue quite easily that Rav Tzadok is absolutely correct. This was not placed here just because Rabbi Yehuda's Rosh HaMedabrim Indeed, if it's just a matter of technical association, we really could have placed this in many, in 30, 40 places in Shas. But rather, the story in its essence belongs in the second parak of Masechet Shabbat. So far, we've seen the principle of Ani significance in terms of placement. I think the principle of Ani significance is also used by Rav Tzadok to explain details of mitzvot. Let's use first a simple example and then a broader example. Again, for Rav Tzadok, the details of mitzvah are not technicalities, but convey deep religious meaning. The very first piece in Sirkat HaTzadik talks about the difference between Pesach and Mitzrayim and Pesach Dorot. Right? The first carbon Pesach and Mitzrayim had certain qualities that it shared with the Pesach Dorot for all generations. <clears throat> and there were certain differences. The Mishnah Mesech Pesachim describes the differences. One difference is the Pesach Mitzrayim was supposed to be in Bechipazon, with great haste. Pesach Dorot has no halacha of Chipazon, no halacha of haste. And Rav Sadok says the Pesach Dorot is in Bemitinut, with a certain calmness, with a certain patience. Rav Sadok says that this is a metaphor for religious life. That often when one starts one's religious life, so Rav Sadok says... In the beginning, you need a grand moment of inspiration, right? You're connected to certain worldly pursuits, and you you break off from that. You have to be zealous about that moment. You have this inspiration. And you're trapped in a pattern, but that moment of inspiration, you, you make the jump, and you take a leap, and you're able to, to change your pattern. And then you have to come to a more patient kind of walking. I think Rav Tzadik is saying a very powerful idea here, that all religious life is 
a combination, perhaps, of these flashes of inspiration, and then this pattern of regularity. And if one doesn't have the flashes of inspiration, perhaps one doesn't change fully. But if one has the inspiration, not regularity, then this leads to a wild kind of religion. One never really solidifies the gains one makes in religious life. So for Abtzadok, this is it. Pesach Mitzrayim is this moment of inspiration, which gives way to the regularity of Pesach Torah. The more complex example really shows the uh, power of Rav Tzadok's approach. If one looks at the halachot of Kriyat Shema and Tefillah, one discovers a few interesting discrepancies. First of all, in Kriyat Shema, one is a lot, under a lot more pressure in the morning than in the evening. In Kriyat Shema in the morning, we know we often struggle, we have to say Shema before Zman Kriyat Shema. And sometimes in certain communities, let's say you have a 8 o'clock or an 8.30 Shabbos davening, you might have to say Kriyat Shema before, before you get there in davening. Where in the evening, you could say Kriyat Shema all evening. You could say Kriyat Shema 3 in the evening, it's not a problem. So that's one point to take note of. We also might take note of some of the differences between Kriyat Shema and Tefillah, that the Zmanim there are different. Right? The Zman of Kriyat Shema in the morning, one has the first three hours of the day. And in Tefillah, one has the first four hours of the day. Also noteworthy that Tefillah provides more time than Kriyat Shema. If we then in Tefillah compare morning and evening, we also notice something interesting. In the morning, Tefillah is obviously an obligatory prayer. Right? Shacharit is certainly a chova, where Mariv might very well be Rashut. A famous debate in Masechet Brachot between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua if Arvit is a chova or Rashut. Indeed, this leads to the famous story in which Rabbi Gamliel mistreats Rabbi Yeshua and is temporarily relieved of his nesiut. And the Psach Halacha actually seems to be that Arvit is a Rashut. So how come tefillah in the morning is obligatory and at night is permissible? Let's add one more detail. Over the course of time, of course, the Minak has developed to treat Arvit as a chova. Right now, we don't treat it as a Rashut anymore, that there's a Minak Yisrael to treat it as obligatory. So now we could ask the following questions. Why do you seem to have more flexibility at night? Right, Kriyach you could say all night. Marv at night might even just be a Rashut. Why is there more time in Tefillah than Kriyach And why is it that this Minak develops to treat Marv like a Chova, even if it might and truly be a Rashut? So Rav Tzadok in Tzidkat HaTzadik Chet tries to explain all these details in a way that gives them all deeper religious meaning. For Rav Tzadok, he points out nighttime is a symbol not just for a time of day, but for the time of difficulty in life. The time of galut, the time of struggles. And then Rav Tzadok says, It's very difficult to find a clear path to accepting heaven, encounter with divinity at, at nighttime. So Rav Tzadok, therefore, nighttime is going to allow for greater flexibility. So this is manifest both with Kriyat Shema and with Tefillah. Right, Kriyat Shema, you have more time at night because we understand it's more difficult. It's more difficult to do a Kabod Omar Chuchamayim, the night times of a person's existence. Tefillah is a Rishot, also because it's more difficult to have the Tefillah experience in the nighttime. Now, why why does one have more time for Tefillah than for Kriyat Shema, both in the morning and the evening? So there, Rav Sadak points out, and here I think we have a good integration of Halacha with Machshava. Rav Sadak points out that Tefillah has an aspect that Kriyat Shema does not. Tefillah is. Nochach Pnei Hashem, or Omed Lofnei Hashem. Tefillah standing before God. Kriyat Shema is an affirmation of the fundamentals of Jewish belief. But Kriyat Shema can be an affirmation to oneself. Whereas Tefillah, without one standing before God, this isn't really Tefillah. Of course, many of us might be thinking about the famous piece in Ruchayim Salvechik's work on the Rambam, which he talks about Tefillah having a kavanah of knowing what the words mean, but also a kavanah of a consciousness of standing before God, where Abchayim says this is the essence of Tefillah. But there are several halachot that seem to really indicate that this is the difference between Kriyat Shema and Tefillah. For example, there's a difference in dress. For Kriyat Shema, one just has to cover the private parts, makom herva. But in theory, one could be bare-chested and say Kriyat Shema. 
where in Tfila one would need to put on a shirt. And again, the idea would seem to be that Kriyat Shema does not convey the sense of standing before God, and therefore would not demand the same kind of honor that Tfila would, where Tfila does create that sense and is really being Omid Lufni Hashem, and therefore Tfila demands more honor. There are several other halakhic examples also where one sees differences between Kriyat Shema and Tfila, but uh, we don't really have time for them now, perhaps another time. So now... Tefillah is more difficult than Kriyat Shema. Kriyat Shema is this affirmation. Tefillah is this attempt to achieve Omed Lufnei Hashem. That's why Tefillah, one has more time in the morning, and that's why Tefillah night becomes Rishut. Ah, what happens towards the end of days, when we get to our time? So Rav Tzadok, like many Chassidim, is optimistic that we're at the four, we're at the edge of the Messianic era. Raka idna beikvot demashicha, karv lo hayom, kablinu lechova. Right, it's difficult in the night times of existence to achieve the Omed Lufnei Hashem of Tefillah, but we feel this optimism that we're moving towards moving towards the Messianic era, and therefore we're able to achieve it, and therefore we accepted Ma'ar Rezachova. So notice what's happened here. Rav Tzadok has explained all these details, distinctions between morning and evening, distinctions between Kriyat Shema and Tefillah, and distinctions between different periods of Jewish history and certain minhagim that developed. All this is not the product of chance or technicalities. This is also all conveying deep religious meaning. So we've seen the omnisignificance principle both in terms of the placement of Agadot and placement of Mesechtot, and in terms of the details of mitzvot. I'd like to look at one last example of omnisignificance in terms of the details of a story. If one's learning an Agadah of Shas, one's learning a story, also there I think one could, could wonder about every detail. Are the details just to give it a little bit of color? Are they details just to place in historical context? Or is every detail, again, pregnant with religious meaning? And here we'll do one reading of an Agadah, which Rav Tzadok really has a tremendous reading of an Agadah, Masechet Sukkah. There's a Gemara Masechet Sukkah in Daflamet Aleph and Aleph, in which an elderly woman complains to Rav Nachman that the Reish Galuta, the Exilarch, right, the head of the Jewish community in Bavel, and all the rabbis of the court of the Exilarch are sitting, sitting in a stolen Sukkah, namely that they've taken her wood and erected a Sukkah out of the wood of this woman. And Rav, Tzadok, Rav Nachman excuse me, does not pay attention to her. So this woman then cries out, Itata, woman, the Havile Lavua that my forefather had, Tlat Mev Atamne Sari Avdi, 318 servants, Tzavcha Kamaychu, she's crying out before you, and you're not paying attention to her? How could it be you're ignoring her? So this is what the woman cries out to Rav Nachman. And one could ask, why does she refer to herself as the descendant of a forefather with 318 servants? Of course, this is a reference to Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu <coughs> takes his 318 men to wage war against the four kings who had defeated the five kings. But one could refer to one's Jewish ancestry in many ways. One could say, I'm the descendant of Avraham who was involved in the Akedah. I was the descendant of Avraham who was the great Machnis Archim, or the great Mekarev. Or one could talk about the wonders of Yitzchak's life or of Yaakov's life. It seems unclear why in her claim to Rav Nachman she specifically referred to herself this way. So Rav Tzadok, and this is in a work called Divrei Sofrim, number Ted Zion, Rav Tzadok has a beautiful reading of this entire Gemara. First, Rav Tzadok begins with a classic Hasidic idea. Our Jews should never despair. Right? Often, in the difficult days of Jewish life in Poland and Lithuania, right, the Hasidim were the ones who successfully conveyed that there's always hope, there's always cause for optimism. And Rav Tzadok says this was built into the very beginning of the Jewish people. No one believed, right? Avram and Sarah themselves were kind of incredulous. Can they have kids at this age? 
So there's a sense that really despair should sit in. There's no possibility of continu- continuity. Avram and Sarah will not be able to give over their spiritual heritage to uh, next generation. And yet it works out. And Rav Tzadok says this is not an accident. Right? This happened to convey this idea in the very beginning of Jewish history. That even when it looks like despair is the only possible approach, nevertheless we should not despair. And then for Rav Tzadok, Avram Avinu becomes a symbol of not despairing. And this is manifest in other aspects of Avram's life. Right? Even the very decision to take on the four kings. <clears throat> right? The four kings were obviously quite powerful. They'd beaten the five kings, even though they were outnumbered. And Avram, as a solitary individual with his uh, ragged band of 318 men, certainly the uh, <clears throat> most obvious response would have been despair. We will never be able to, never be able to rescue Avram's nephew Lot, and uh, this is not a battle that should be engaged in. And yet Avram does not despair. So Avram is the symbol of not despairing. Now he works off a famous Gemara. Gemara says that the 318 men is none other than Avram's servant Eliezer, because Eliezer is the gematria of 318. But for Rav Tzadok, this is about more than just gematria. Where does the name Eliezer come from? So we don't know in terms of Eliezer Eved Avraham where the name comes from. But if one looks at the same name in the context of Moshe Rabbeinu's children, so Moshe Rabbeinu says that I called Eliezer Kilokei Avi Bezrebi Atzileni Micher Paro, that God saved me from the sword of Paro. So Eliezer is from God as the Savior, which means that the very name Eliezer is about overcoming despair. So when Chazal say that he took his servant Eliezer to fight the four kings, it's not trying to make a comment about whether it was 318 men or one. The real point is that he took the ability to not despair. He took the Eliezer, the sense of divine salvation with him in his fight. And then Rav Sadek says a tremendous gematria. Now I have to admit, in general, I'm not a huge fan of gematria, but this gematria is just so good and leads to something so profound that one is just forced to accept it. Rav Sadek says, V'zeo remez mispar this is the hint of the number 318. Ye'ush is, of course, 317. So Rav Tzadok uses a famous rule that you could allow to be off by what in gematria? And that's called imha kolel, meaning you take the word ye'ush and count that also. So you have 317 plus the word ye'ush is 318. Once again, the 318 man means the ability to deal with ye'ush. Here I'd like to just deviate a bit from what Rav Tzadok says and perhaps say it in a different way. Perhaps you don't have to count the kolel and you don't have to explain why you're off by one. 318 precisely means that one has gone beyond Yeush. Yeush is 317. When Avram takes his 318 men, he's gone beyond despair, and he's able to take on the four kings. And already we see how Rav Sadok is making different details come to life in the deeper meaning here. That the 318 men is not an accidental number, it's going beyond Yeush. And when the Gemara associates it with Eliezer, it's the same idea. And this is, of course, Avram Avinu, because Avram Avinu is the symbol of, uh, of the ability to not despair. Now, Rav Sadok turns to this story. She said to herself, she thought as follows, Why you, Rav Nachman, why do you and the rabbis in the court of the Reish Galuta, why do you think that you don't have to give me the wood back? You must hold like Rabbi Shimon, who says, Stam meaning that when a person has stuff taken away from them in the context of a they give up. Right? One thinks, okay, the, the armed ruffian took my stuff from me, and I will never see it again. Ah, so then, there's even more so. Not only might you hold like Rabbi Shimon, that Stam but it's not just the run of the Mothifu took it here, the most powerful people in Jewish society. 
right, the court of the Reish Galuta has taken her stuff, surely this woman has given up. And then, and then there's been a change of possession, right, that they went over to Rav Nachman and the Rabban. Now, we know in the world of theft that sometimes if there's despair and a shenua and some kind of change, which is a change of property, this, of course, does not mean that the thief gets off free, but it does mean that the thief will then have to pay compensation, meaning the person who gets it through Shinei Rashud becomes the owner of the item, right? If a thief steals and then sells it to somebody else, it may very well be that the recipient of the sale becomes the owner, and the thief has to pay monetary compensation to the original owner. So the woman is reasoning, this must be what you're thinking. It's not that you, the rabbis, would not want me to get compensation. Of course, you will demand of the Reish Kluta that I have to be paid. At the same time, though, you're convinced that the wood now belongs to you because of Yeush and Shinei Rashut. So then the woman says, Al So according to Rav Tzadok, then the Gemara is very powerful. She has to refer specifically to being a daughter of Avram, and she has to refer specifically to this story. Because Avram is the symbol of not despairing in Judaism. Avram is the one who is able to have kids even at advanced age. Avram is the one who takes on the four kings. And that's why she has to refer specifically to this. It's not just Avram at the Akedah. It's Avram at the four kings, Avram being the symbol of not despairing, right? The Eliezer, the 318. And that's why she refers specifically to that number. I am the descendant of someone who had 318 men. Namely, I don't despair. Things may look very bleak. Maybe that the Reish Galuta and all the influential and powerful people of society have taken wood from a poor old woman. Nevertheless, I not for a second that I give up on retrieving my wood, and therefore it's not a case of Yehush and Shinui, and I should receive my wood back, and you'll be forced to take down your sukkah and give me the wood. Now, one aspect of Tzadik doesn't deal with it. The end of the story of Nachman still does not listen to her. I think that could be dealt with in various ways. It might have to do with a certain takanat barish to make life easier for a thief to do tshuva. Be that as it may, I think Rav Tzadik has a very profound reading. So we've seen one theme of Rav today, the theme of omni-significance. Everything matters. Everything matters in terms of the placement of, sh- of Shas, placement of Agadot. Everything matters in terms of halachic details. Everything matters in terms of the details of a story, such as a woman who talks about 318 men. These are not the products of technicalities and accidents and historical chance. Rather, they're all full of religious meaning.